For full transcripts, translations, content notes, and resources from this episode, follow along with us on our show notes at queensmemory.org. This is the Queen's Memory Podcast, a selection of personal histories from the borough of Queens in New York City. This podcast comes to you from the Queen's Memory Project, based in Jamaica, Queens, at the Queen's Central Library. I'm Natalie Milbrook, Director of Queen's Memory, where we record and preserve contemporary history across the borough. We grow our archives by collecting oral histories, photos, and mementos shared with us by community members. Local volunteers who train with Queen's Memory staff facilitate and record our oral history interviews. We feature oral histories from our archives so we can reflect on and engage with the histories we listen to and tell one another. How do we carry each other's stories? What shapes our personal and family histories? How did we get to the neighborhoods where we live? And where are we in relation to each other's histories? As part of New York City, Queens has long been a point of entry to the United States. Thinking about the borough in this way, we searched through our archives to gather stories of migration for this first season of the Queen's Memory Podcast. These stories cross continents and move through decades of the past century. We share these oral histories to reflect on the histories of this borough, of this country, and of ourselves. Buffalo, I bartended in Ireland before I left Ireland. Myself, I inland pilot. I couldn't fly here in the city. I went to Belfast. I got a job in a bar. I applied for a residence permit. I wasn't flying. I went to New Jersey trying to find a job. It was a Saturday, payday. When I opened my pocketbook, envelope with a cash, I dropped. Meeting people in Jackson Heights and talking to people, those stories motivated me towards doing something. For our fifth episode, we collected stories of work. After listening through our archives, we began to think about connections between labor and migration. We considered histories stretching back centuries in the U.S. in which work has remained a major factor in deciding who gets to stay where. Naturalization processes in the U.S. going back to 1790 require what legal documents refer to as good moral character, in large part determined through employer sponsorship and employment history. We've also talked in previous episodes about how many U.S. immigration documents like green cards and H-category visas require either a job or legally validated family relationships, and how recent U.S. immigration laws have instituted more preferences for formal education and credentials. We want to continue thinking about political circumstances and histories as we listen further. In this episode, we'll reflect on the many factors that form our relationships to where we live and how we work. Let's listen. How'd you get your first job in New York? I went back up to up to Buffalo. I was Buffalo. in Buffalo at that time. Okay. <clears throat> and um, gather up my few belongings, and I had to work. I was working for a guy up there at that time in a bar, and um, he released me early and let me travel all the way back to New York. In Buffalo, I bartended in Ireland before I left Ireland. 
your bartending yeah. as well. Yeah. So you were yeah. comfortable. I was in the comfortable. Job. I was. I was actually very good at it. If I may <laughs> say so. <laughs> oh, you may. You may. I know. Yeah. It, it's it's um, it's a challenge being a good bartender, and it's work. Well, in Dublin, when I was there, it was a unionized job. And, you know, there was the finest of guys doing this work, and it was a union job. I didn't know that yeah, bartenders had a union. And you were trained, you know, the way you were an apprentice, a junior, a senior, and you moved up the line, and your pay went the same way. I had no idea, mm, did you? Mm, I had mm. no idea. Yeah, it was, it was very, it was a very kind of halfway respected job yeah, back then. Yeah, so it seems. In between bar jobs here, I would work for, um, you know, on construction. You know, we would do sidewalks and uh, various small jobs at homeowners' houses. And I was just a worker. And I was driving along one Saturday with this Mayo guy, who was a rough guy, in a truck. And I thought, this would be a nice life. And uh, I thought, I'm going to do something like this. Maybe it's possible that I could do something like this. And uh, so as time went on, I, I, uh, I was working behind the bar in Bayside, up on Belle Boulevard. Oh, which one? Uh, it was called the Minstrel Boy back then, now it's called Bourbon Street. And, uh, and prior to the Minstrel Boy, it was called McElroy's. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kevin and I yeah. grew up in McElroy's. Did you? Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You worked there? Yeah. Yeah, My. right after, right after McElroy. That's right. Minstrel yeah. Wow. Very busy place. Oh and, yeah. Uh, I remember one Wednesday night, a whole the regular gang were gone. They moved on. It just seemed to dissipate. And there was a whole new group of young guys sitting along the bar, and they were trying to be friendly to the bartender. And sure. I was saying, oh, here's another group now, and here I am. I'm thirty maybe 34 80. at the time. Oh, yeah. Hey, uh, mid-80s? Yeah, something like that. Okay. And I'm thinking, am I going to be a bartender when I'm, you know, old? 44, right, yeah, in 10 years' yeah. time, sure. And I was scared. The thought of that scared me. It was all a lot of fun up to that point. And then I said, I don't want to be a bartender. And I, and I had tried the owning thing already and wasn't successful with that. So I said, I'm not, I can't. You know, mm -hmm. this game was over for me, you know, that, uh, and I said to myself, I wonder what is the qualifications uh, to being a contractor? And I started thinking about it and I said, there is no qualifications, you know, so I, I often tell people, I made a, a complete circle behind the bar, turned my body all the way around and I said, I'm a contractor. And who is to say I'm not, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that was and that was a major turning point. That was a major. Once I had that burning desire mm -hmm. in 1984, and you can do anything if you have enough of a burning desire. Yes. I just I just went towards it. We went down and we bought an old Con Ed truck um, at the auction. You know, a dump truck. Yep. Oh, and yeah. uh, and then started from there. I started with a partner. Uh, was kind of he was looking to get into business as well, mm -hmm. and we kind of uh, started. My training to be a contractor was on the job training. <laughs> <laughs> I just figured if I could make a week, if I could make a week's pay of what I was making behind the bar, then anything above that is a bonus. Right. You know? What did your wife think about your decision? Uh, she wanted me to go to work for Con Edison. 
but she worked for Con Edison. Okay. So she arranged to have this um, this um, interview for me, and I never liked being boxed in, and I felt like if I took that job, I'd be starting out at the very bottom, mm. and I could be there for thirty years. Yeah. And I said I don't want to be boxed in. In the contracting business, how soon did you feel that was the right choice? Mm. Um, almost right away. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just had a, I had a way of, um, one of the reasons that I went into the contracting business was because I didn't want to be a worker. I knew I wouldn't be a very good worker. <laughs> you want to be the boss. You want to be the boss. So I said, who has the easiest job? You know, so I thought the boss can do what he likes. So I thought I'd be the boss. The opening oral history for this episode came from Tony O'Reilly, reflecting on his work in bars in the different towns where he moved and sharing memories of moving between cities and finding work. He mentions working at a bar in Bayside formerly called The Minstrel Boy, which shares its name with an Irish nationalist song from the turn of the 18th century. Keep listening and head to our show notes for more on Irish independence movements and their connections to U.S. history, racial politics, and migration. In these next oral histories, we'll hear from Dimitri Radu and Christopher Bowles, who also talk about how their jobs became intertwined with their migration stories. Let's start with Dimitri Radu, telling stories of piloting in World War II and later doing translation work after migrating to New York. So you were a pilot in during the war. Everything I would say in the war is related with the political climate of in Europe. After World War II, Europe was actually divided. The Western Europe and the Eastern Europe and that created a wave of refugees from East Europe to West Europe and all over the places. Therefore, I left Romania with my wife and my son. Uh, we spent some time in France and uh, finally we received a, a visa of Colombia, South America. We spent five years in South America. I was flying also in Colombia. Uh, they hired me as an airline pilot in Avianca, their company. My wife also, she was a teacher in Romania. And uh, when we got the possibility to enjoy our vacation, we decided in 55 to spend one month here, in United States of America. Myself, I was familiar with America because I was flying between Colombia and United States, but when my wife knew anything up, up to that time about United States. When we reached uh, New York, I said, I will never leave that place. They, she put me back to the wall. You do whatever about myself, I am going to stay here. Therefore, we went to the immigration, we heard documents, she was a teacher. They said, okay, indeed, we have a possibility to give her the visa of the United States. 
provided as teacher she is able to be hired by a school here in the United States. Meanwhile, I myself, an airline pilot, I was not an American citizen, I was a former refugee from Armenia to a refugee from Romania. I couldn't fly here in the United States. They got in a pilot. And uh, I received a proposition to fly for an outfit it was called Air Liban. So it you was, retired from being a pilot at age 60, right? Automatically. Also obligatory retirement imposed by the mm -hmm. rules, Federal Aviation Rules of America. Somehow this is kind of universal action because the friends seat me Europe, Germany, also everybody, 60, they were sent to pasture to go home. 60. But when you have to be 65 in states to enjoy your social security payment. Therefore, I went to labor department, lay. They let me go because you see, according to the law, what can I do? I'm only 60. Oh, what's the order background? Oh, college is better. You join us as a <laughs> language translator because I spoke Romanian, French, Spanish, of course, broken English. <laughs> so who did you work for to be a translator? Who, who hired you as a translator? The New York State government. Uh -huh. Because they got a conflict. Uh, between employee and the employer. Or someone leaves their jobs or is fired. Someone got to decide if the, that individual lost his job, uh, lost the job because his income fall, or some other. And the, the man who translated made the decision. I was in the position to make the decision if you, in the unemployed people are entitled to unemployment benefits or not. When I reach 65, I retire myself to 65, I go, I don't want to make money anymore. So what did you enjoy most about your job as a pilot? And what did you enjoy most about your job as a translator? Well, look, being the pilot is the best, most beautiful occupation. Even today I am dreaming, dreaming of flying. Following Tony O'Reilly and Dimitri Radu, Christopher Bowles recounts a number of jobs held throughout Ireland and Northern Ireland in the 1940s and 50s. While telling stories of work, he references several political circumstances present at the time, such as changing mining industries in Ireland and Canada, contributing to conditions for immigration, as well as systematic inequities in Northern Ireland granting Protestants access to jobs and housing over Catholics. For further context about Ireland in the mid-20th century, hear our version of A Condensed History in Episode 3. Let's listen. I was, yeah, at 16 I was went to Barton in Belfast. And uh, in the north of Ireland at that time they had a policy that they brought in to the government. 
there were too many people going from the south of Ireland to the north of Ireland to work because there was more money and more jobs there. So they brought in this rule that you have to apply for a residence permit to work and stay in Belfast. So I went to Belfast and I got a job in a bar, Francis. And I was just there three months. I applied for a residence permit. And in three months I got my word back I was, was declined. So I had to go back. Shipbuilding was going on there at that time. There was a lot of all the all the Protestant people got the work in the shipyards, they were the good jobs. The uh, Catholics didn't get them. There was a lot of a lot of prejudice in Belfast at that time between Catholics and Protestants. You figured it didn't bother you if you well, got a job, you're working. So uh, it didn't work for me. So I um, came home and I got a job in Bondor and I was a seaside place for the summer, that summer. When that summer was over, I said, I think I'll go back up to Belfast again and see what happens. So I went back up and now I've got more experience and I got more money and I had a fine job working and I decided I would not apply for a residence permit this time. And I didn't. And sure enough, I was there about three months and they caught up to me. Oh. Right down south again. Disappointing, right? Disappointing, yes, very disappointing. So, there was some relative had just opened a coal mine in a place called Arena, which is there nine miles away from where I lived. So the owner of this mine, he was married to a cousin of mine, one of the girls from Dublin, my father's brother's family. And he wanted my brother, an older brother of mine, to go to work for him to weigh the coal. My brother didn't want this job. And I just only heard them talking about it in the house. I decided myself, I think I'll go out and look for that job. <laughs> so I went out to the coal mine, and I was up to kind of a little mountain, and it was very soggy and wet going up there. And I had a parked bicycle about, I don't know how far, quarter of a mile away from the mine, and walked the rest of the way. So I got to the mine, so the foreman was there, the one who was doing the job, but he was going to another job. So he didn't know which brother I was arriving at home like that, so I just told him I was out for the waymaster's job. So he just showed me how to do it and says me there the next day. So. <laughs> how long did you do that for? I lasted for two months. If I had stayed another two months, I'd be dead because it was terrible, terrible work altogether. It, getting there was the hardest part of it, riding the bicycle so far and then walking up the side of the mountain. Oh. <laughs> and then I could never bring enough to eat. I was starving all the time. So, um, luckily enough, 
I got fired. <laughs> and some other relatives got the job. And he only lasted one week. <laughs> so I figured I did good. I was there for two months. What prompted you coming to this country? It was a kind of a way of life that time. Everybody was going somewhere. And I kind of had it stuck in my head that I was going to go somewhere. What year was this around? What year? <clears throat> I left in... Uh, 19, January 1954, but I went to Canada first. I, I decided to try Canada. Somebody, there was a word out about somebody discovering uranium up in Canada somewhere. I said, let me see and go if I can find some of this uranium. <laughs> but it was so cold in Toronto, the first day I walked <laughs> down the street, <laughs> forget about that uranium. How did you wind up in New York then? Did, you bro did your brother talk you into it? <laughs> well, eventually, no. Eventually, I heard from my brother. And he said he just opened a bar out in Ridgewood, Queens. And would have come down and worked for him. We put together the next set of stories to think about receiving support whether in finding jobs, getting paychecks, or organizing with fellow workers. These clips come from oral histories with Alfredo Cornejo, Chan Hee Kim, and Luna Ranjit. We start the collection with Alfredo Cornejo, who recounts how his business plans and migration were impacted by a friend's unexpected passing, and how he received support from others after arriving to the U.S. Let's think about different ways to build support in community and work, and listen closer. I came to this country knowing nobody. And uh, at the beginning, I slept in phone booths at the bus terminal, at the train station, uh, or, you know, when, when they told me what I was doing there, I, I moved from one place to the other one. Sometimes I moved two, three times. Oh, okay. uh, yes. So you basically... They didn't have a place to stay. You I didn't have a place to stay at all. Oh. Yeah. Or, or a job, you know. And seeing as you're a Peruvian financial advisor, I'm guessing you were born in Peru. Yes, I was born in Peru, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the economy in Peru was not good, so you came to America. Was your main purpose to come to America for money? For, well, you know? the main purpose was to get ahead. My, my goal was, at the beginning, to work establish myself, you know, renting a room, an apartment, mm. and then go to go to school and try to obtain a diploma or something that I, that I could use back in, back in my home country, in Peru. And uh, original, I was supposed to come with a friend, but he died in an accident a week before we were scheduled to come. And uh, as a consequence, I came by myself. Uh, the original idea was to work together, save money together, and then come back to, to Peru and set up a business in Peru, you know. We had many ideas that, uh, that uh, but everything changed when he passed away. That was my idea then. I was young at the time, I was 20 years old, and, uh, and that's what I thought, yeah. Wow, mm -hmm. so, so since you were young, 
So wait, so since, since you came here since you were so young, you said 20 years old, right? Yes. Did you face any kind of discrimination or struggle as a Latino when you were here? Oh, the honest truth, I never felt that. On the contrary, uh, remember, you know, uh, I was, uh, I went to, to live to New Jersey at the beginning trying to find a job because someone told me about a job and I came to New Jersey. This person, uh, uh, this guy from Puerto Rico, he helped me so much and he introduced me to a few people and uh, they encouraged me to learn the language and to study. I knew how to write and read English, but uh, to, sp to speak the language was hard. Then, uh, uh, that's what I did. I worked hard. When I began to work in New Jersey back those years, uh, I used to walk 20, 30 blocks to go to work. I had no car, no not, not even a bike, no nothing. And you know they used to see me and they used to tell me, "Do you want to ride?" And I, by the by their expression, I knew that they meant that if, if I want to ride, and they said yes, and they took me. You know, at the beginning was an older person, there was a young person, a young girl, a young man. I got a lot of help from unknown persons. You know, mm. yeah. I worked for the women's boutique store in Manhattan. It was so hard. For nine hours, I had to stand up. I could not, you know, sit down for nine hours. I had only lunch break time for 20 minutes, and I had to work and work and work. That time in New York, the woman's boutique store business was so good. All day, it was really, 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 really busy. And I worked like a dog or a horse. And every night, I had a cramp in my legs. So painful. They paid me in cash. Mm -hmm. So $200 weekly. Mm -hmm. And I had worked you know, for 58 hours. Standing. Yeah. And then, before, you know, I left to Korea, we could, I, you know, left, you know, my girls there, right? So, I, you know, talked to, you know, my older daughter when she was, uh, she was uh, five. I taught her, you know, to write to Korean. Mm -hmm. So we could you know, exchange you know, letters. It was a Saturday, payday. Uh -huh. Payday. And you know, in the morning, you know, in the morning, uh, I had you know, prepared a letter for my daughter mm -hmm. sending to Seoul. So, and you know, payday Saturday, that I got the, you know, the check, uh, cash in the Citibank envelope. Mm -hmm. So I had, you know, two envelopes, right? So on the way, you know, on the way to the F train station, E mm -hmm. train station, you know, the Third Avenue. Okay. 50th, 53rd Street. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, dropped in, in the, you know, the mailbox letter for my daughter. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I came home, when I opened my, you know, purse, my, you know, pocketbook mm -hmm. to, to take out, you know, my lunchbox. Oh my God, 
letter was there. <laughs> the envelope with the letter was there. And the, my, you know, the envelope with the cash was, I dropped. So it was my, you know, one week, you know, yeah. income. Mm -hmm. So that time, you know, we just uh, lived, you know, week to week, right? Oh my God. So, you know, I called the 114, mm -hmm. 114, and, you know, I explained what happened to me. She said, uh, she, you know, uh, gave me the, the headquarter of the post office. So, you know, I called them and I explained. Mm -hmm. And uh, they asked me what street the mailbox located. Yeah. said Third Avenue, 50 something. And uh, he said, okay, nine o'clock, the trunk man will, you know, the around. Yeah. Collect, you know, the letters from mm -hmm. all the, you know, the mailbox. So you can go to, you know, the 53rd, 53rd Street on 3rd Avenue. Mm -hmm. There is a huge, big, beautiful building, post office building. So you go there and then you know, talk to them. Okay. Yeah. So I went there, you know, everybody, you know, left for us. Only, you know, the night shift you know, people, you know, were there. And I explained to them and they said, okay, you just wait. Maybe they will, you know, finish, you know, collecting and they will come back here. So you wait. So it was around uh, 11 o'clock. Okay. 11 o'clock. And uh, all the post office, you know, the workers start doing Everybody just look. I just described how it looked like. Uh -huh. I said, you know, Citibank, you know, envelope and uh, red and uh, blue and green, you know, line was there. Mm -hmm. So the night shift, you know, stopped their work. <laughs> so at the last two hours, almost two hours, I was waiting there and around 11.30, one guy, you know, <laughs> we found then the one guy you know, brought in you know, that envelope. The two hundred dollar cash was there. So it was my second, you know, unforgettable you know, memory in United States. What did you know about New York before you moved here? New York, New York. Before you know, I came to New York. I heard from all the Koreans, mm -hmm. they had to just work, 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 work. Mm -hmm. no, ma no, no matter how, you know, highly they educated, they have to do, you know, just, you know, the very, you know, hard, you know, physical work. Yeah. So, you know, mentally, I was prepared for it. So, very hard and discrimination. Mm -hmm. Race, race, racial discrimination, and uh, nobody will be, nobody, I don't have anybody, you know, be warm to me. You know, I didn't expect anybody, you know. Following Alfredo Cornejo and Chun Hee Kim, we end this episode with clips from an oral history with Luna Ranjit, 
who recounts memories of co-founding the nonprofit organization Adhikar. We'll introduce Adhikar in the organization's words as a women-led worker and community center that serves and organizes the Nepali-speaking immigrant and refugee community. Can you tell me a little bit about the beginnings of Adhikar? Um, the beginnings of Adhikar, it sort of just happened. I wasn't planning on building this big organization that it has become now. Um, I was really new to the city. I was barely making connections. But everywhere I went, though, like, you know, that people not recognizing the community, everyone saying that, oh, you're the first Nepali I've met, and that, um, and seeing that there are research on South Asians come out, but Nepalis were not included in it, or one study where they're like Nepalis were um, interviewed but dropped from the final analysis because we're not statistically significant. And which, you know, as someone who has studied statistics, makes sense, right? But as a Nepali, that just didn't jive well with me. I didn't want to be statistically insignificant. But also um, um, seeing then, like, you know, meeting people um, in Jackson Heights and talking to people and saying that, you know, they hadn't seen their family members for a decade or more and people hadn't gone to a doctor visit and people being afraid, uh, people not getting paid uh, for work they had done. So those stories sort of just motivated me towards like doing something but doing something at the beginning still in my mind and like even like the four of us who started it was sort of like can we work within an existing structure can we work within an, a South Asian organization can we work within a Nepali organization um, but we couldn't find a good space for what we were really looking to do and so we started the organization in 2005. We had no money. Um, we was literally, a, it was me coming to Jackson Heights with my backpack. Like, so basically, I used to call it like the portable office, <laughs> you know, and just hanging out in Jackson Heights and talking to anyone and everyone who would want to talk to me. But I also used to live in Staten Island, so it was two hours commute each way, and just talking to people and listening to a lot of stories. That's how it started. But it really, I mean, you know, I'm young. I, I was, you know, and I'm a woman, and I am a new face. So not a good combination for people to trust or like think of me as someone with solutions. You know, and so. For the longest time, it was not easy, but slowly. I think it's really uh, being present all the time, everywhere. I think I slowly started gaining trust. And and then we then also started making connections and started talking to South Asian community organizations and talking to Nepali organizations and trying to find some key leaders within the um, community as well, not necessarily people leaders, as in not like people who were like head of organizations or whatever, but like people I saw them, at other people 
went to for advice or or sort of had some influence in the community and so that having their support also helped early on and so we um, started really really small things just really took off I think we're uh, Adhikar arrived at a time when the community was growing and so we met tapped into an unmet need but also uh, we also tapped into people who were ready to take action and so that helped a lot. Thank you for listening with us on the Queen's Memory Podcast. Visit our show notes blog at queensmemory.org. There you'll find full transcripts and written translations of this episode and more to listen to from our archives. We've also added reading recommendations from Queen's Public Library's collections, as well as resources from local community organizations. And if you want your stories to join those you heard today and become part of our archives, head to queensmemory.org forward slash participate or to our show notes to find out more. I'd like to thank our producer, Adrian Lara, and our composer, Elias Raven. A warm thank you to Ro Garrido for providing fundamental collaboration and support, and to Richard Lee and Molly Schwartz for offering their guidance and wisdom. Thanks also to the Queen's Public Library and the Institute of Museum and Library Services for hosting and funding this podcast. Finally, thank you to all the interviewees, interviewers, interns, and volunteers for collecting and sharing the stories that make this podcast possible. If you're listening with others and want to reflect together, here are some guiding questions. What kinds of work have you done? How did you come to do that work? And what role does it play in your life? Find us next on our sixth episode on residence and consider the different places we've stayed and how we got there. Listen with us next time on the Queen's Memory Podcast.